You can open your Bibles if you have them to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Psalm 15. Uh, When you move into a house or when you have a property of your own, uh, trees become very important to you. I remember as a kid coming home, driving home uh, with my parents and we would get out of a long car ride and, and we would go uh, to go into the house and I would stand at a locked door while my parents went and looked at their trees. And they would go and look at each tree and they would talk about what's going on with the tree and what needed to be done to the tree and all things that for me as a 10-year-old boy was incredibly boring. And all I wanted to do was unlock the door and get inside the house. But they had to inspect their tree. Understanding the, how trees grow seems like a really pretty simple process. You plant a seed in the ground, you water it, and over time, providing enough nourishment to the soil, enough water, and of course enough sunlight, the right mixture of sunlight and shade, uh, the tree eventually will uh, grow, presumably will, will grow. And so it seems like a really pretty basic concept, but it wasn't until I actually got my own house that I started inspecting those trees. As we'd pull up to the driveway, I'd walk out and look at all the trees in our yard and What I started to notice, the first house we bought, we actually killed three trees on accident. Uh, The first one, the first couple were, uh, were, you know, our fault entirely. Uh, Either not providing enough water or not providing the right kind of nutrients or or whatever it was. For one reason or another, the trees died. Uh, So, but what I noticed about those trees and what, what anybody that begins to inspect and work with trees will tell you is that you can see a lot, you can tell a lot about the health of a tree by the fruit that it produces. You look at the leaves and you look at the fruit and you look at things around the tree and all of the things that are coming out of the tree and it tells you a lot about what's the, the parts that you can't see, the root system underneath, the, the, the trunk in the middle, the parts that you can't really see. Even though the bark on the outside might really look good and fine, the inside of the tree could be rotten to the core. In fact, what you find out about trees is that good roots produce good fruits. It's a pretty basic concept. And when you see bad fruits, bad leaves, when you see signs of decay, it's typically a sign of a much deeper problem, an infection that lies underneath somewhere. In our passage this morning, David presents a a litmus test. For those that are included in the family of God, those who live in His presence and are invited to live in His presence. So with that in mind, let's read Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor, does, nor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does all these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for this text, our understanding of this text. And just as I mentioned before, I pray again that you would use this text as a mirror that we would all individually stand in front of and examine our own lives Examine our own choices. Examine everything about our life. I pray, Father, that you would reveal to us things that we did not know before about ourselves, about our own heart, and that you would produce in us a spirit of repentance that rather than being boastful and hard-hearted, And making excuses, we would instead humbly submit to your word and confess openly the things that we are guilty of. We pray that you would do that through your word 
this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. While we've been going through uh, each psalm one by one, we've also been mindful, I hope anyway, as we've gone through the psalms, mindful of the way all of the psalms fit together. Uh, The individual psalms obviously were arranged by an editor. They might have been composed at various times throughout Israel's history by various authors, in this case, for what we've been covering mostly from the pen of David. But uh, the Psalms as a whole might have been composed by a multitude of different people and then later compiled and arranged in a particular order. But they were, that is the point, they were put together by a particular editor or editors at some point in Israel's history so that they came together to communicate a consistent message. And so what we find is that book one of Psalm has a main purpose. And this is what we've said about book one's main purpose. Book one's main purpose is about the establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through his anointed king, which is originally David, but ultimately is Jesus. And I want to say that again, just so that we remind ourselves, book one, which is Psalm 1 to 41, its main purpose is about the establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through this anointed king that he has put on his holy hill. That is originally David, but ultimately will be Jesus. So we've been able to see over the past 14 weeks or so, uh, the, the, the way one psalm flows into another, the way one psalm will make reference back maybe to previous psalms, whether it was the one that came immediately before it, or maybe it was several that came before it, or mentioning themes that we've already explored in the previous psalms all the way back to the beginning. So although the psalms can and probably should be read individually, devotionally by you, I think the best way is at least once in your life to read them through from one to the next and see how they work together from beginning to end. You experience the full evolution of the psalm's message when you approach it the way that they are arranged. And perhaps you might get a more appreciation for how the psalms just turn slightly, starting with Psalm 15. There's just a slight pivot from what we've been looking at so far in the Psalms. You might notice, as I read Psalm 15, whereas the previous Psalms have really been concerned, and we've been talking quite a bit in here about the fools and the one who profane the Lord, the ones who profane the Lord and the ones who are against David and the enemies of David that have surrounded him. But then starting in Psalm 15, there seems to be this concentration on David's relationship with the Lord. And we're going to get that for the next few Psalms where David starts to think about his own relationship with the Lord and the people around him, their relationship with the Lord. Remember over the past few psalms, the escalation of the wicked to the point where David says in Psalm 12, the godly one is gone. David laments in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? And then in 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So with this being the state of affairs, what is the righteous to do? The next few psalms will consider the the righteous person's relationship to the Lord. During the midst of overwhelming circumstances, what does inclusion in the family of God really look like? What does inclusion in the family of God really look like? If I am part of the family of God, what should my life actually look like? What fruit is produced in the life of someone who is included in the family of God? I want us to really think deeply 
about that question. Notice how the psalm, how David opens this psalm. He says in verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? David poses two questions right out of the gate in in verse 1. And both are addressed to the Lord. And both are really reiterating the same thing, or at least a very similar thing. The first question has, you you see there, tent of the Lord. Who shall dwell in your tent? Uh, And and as you may recall, or who who shall sojourn, I should say, in your tent. You you may recall as the children of, of Israel are marching out of the land of Egypt Uh, Through the desert they went for 40 years and then ultimately into the promised land. They're carrying with them this giant tent that they called the tabernacle. And some furniture that goes in the tabernacle they also carried along with them, one of which was the Ark of the Covenant that goes when the tent tent or the tabernacle is set up. That Ark of the Covenant, which is the very presence of God on top of it, is, uh, it goes into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest would enter. And when they moved on to the next spot, they would pack up the tent, they would pack up all the furniture, they had specific ways that they were supposed to carry all of the furniture, and the Levites would carry the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle furniture and the tent and all of that, and they would pick up and they would move to the next location, and they would set that up and the camp would camp around that tabernacle, and upon, upon arrival, everything would be done as prescribed, and all of that is laid out in the second half of the book of Exodus. We see the prescription for how the tabernacle is supposed to be built, and what's supposed to go into it, and all of those kinds of things. The tabernacle became known as the tent of meeting, because it was the place where the Lord met with His people, particularly through the priest, and, and specifically the high priest. And it, was, it was a, a, and it was not only a place where the Lord dwelt with His people and met with His people, but it was also a tent. So tent of meeting kind of stuck. It became a, a, a good nickname, I guess, for it. But the Lord's tent then became the way that the Jews would enter into the presence of God. So to sojourn in the Lord's tent, as David puts it here, it, it means to be a foreigner who is welcomed into the presence of God. One who is able to walk into the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. You need to feel the trepidation behind that question. That's a serious question. It's one of great concern for David, and there's a lot of fear that goes into that question. Who, who can just walk into your tent? Uzziah, uh, sorry, not Uzziah, Uzzah. You'll remember the story of, of him as they're taking the Ark of the Covenant along down the road, and, it, and the ox cart kind of shakes, and the Ark of the Covenant begins to fall off, and Uzzah thinks that he's going to just catch the Ark and he touches it, and he dies on the spot. The people at Sinai, you'll remember, come to the mountain, and there the presence of God is, and they pause, and they tell Moses, we can't stand here and listen to the voice of God, because if we do, we'll die. Who can listen to the voice of God and still live? And so they tell Moses, you need to go up to the top of the mountain. You need to listen to what he says. You just tell us what he says because we can't stand to hear it anymore so it's a serious question who can just come into your holy tent who can sojourn in your tent then the second question is very much like it who shall dwell on your holy hill and it's similar to the first one, but it clarifies a little bit of what's meant by the first question the Lord's holy hill is Mount Zion which originally during the time of David was where David's house sat. You may remember Psalm 2, verse 6. The Lord says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. David is the king that that Yahweh is ruling the world through. And the Lord literally sets him atop 
of his holy hill of Mount Zion. That's where his house actually was. It's the hill from which the Lord rules and, and reigns and which his rule emanates. His rule of humanity comes through the divine king, originally David, ultimately Jesus, and then emanates to the rest of the world. And he has set him on his holy hill. He's perched him atop Mount Zion, and he rules, and David rules the world on behalf of God. In the beginning, at least, David, ultimately Jesus. And his job, that king's job, is to ensure that justice is exercised for the people and truth is taught to the people. The king, in the presence of God, is ruling the nations on God's behalf. And he's dwelling there. He's living there in the presence of God. And so this opening question is really asking, who can live in the presence of the Lord? As the king might live in the presence of the Lord, or as the the people enter into the presence of the Lord for worship, who is qualified to be able to enter into the presence of the Lord? It's a pretty common idea in the Psalms or in any worship liturgy. Many of the Psalms are, remember, preparing the congregation to worship. There's, for instance, Psalms of Ascent where they're sung specifically as people are walking up to the temple. There's Psalms of Entrance like this one that are asking who can actually come in and enter in. And there's various other kinds of Psalms that play into different aspects of the Jews' worship of Yahweh in the temple. But needless to say that there are many psalms that are preparing the congregation for worship. And a question that gets the congregation thinking about worship calls them to ask the question, how can I actually enter into the presence of of the Lord in worship? How is it that I can... I can just walk into this temple complex. How is it that I can enter in and worship the Lord? You need to think about that. When we begin our our worship services here, the first song we sing is in the form of a song of praise. The, The focus of the lyrics typically are going to be about how great God is. Jesus, Messiah, Name above all names. Blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Joyful, joyful, we adore Thee. God of glory, Lord of love. We want the music that we play in here to serve a specific purpose in our worship services. Those first few songs, we want specifically to call us to focus on the God that we are coming to worship. Characteristics about Him, attributes about Him. Things that we are not normally inclined to think about. And we then read Scripture. Notice after that first song, we read Scripture about the magnificence of God that actually invites us to come into the worship of Him for our good and for His glory. Those initial Scripture readings that we, that we give at the very beginning of the worship service, if you'll pay attention, are not only about, uh, most of the time they're, they're not only about how great God is, but also an appeal to you, the listener, the audience, That God is inviting you to come in and recognize how good He is, recognize how amazing He is, and come in to worship Him. It's an invitation to worship. He's saying to us, as we read God's literal words in the Bible, these are God's literal words to us, we are reading, it's as if God is actually telling us, yes, I want you to come and worship me. I know that I'm holy and I want you to come and worship me. 
And this is similar to how worship of God has been done since God revealed himself to humanity. It's been this way since the beginning. And he's beckoning the church to do it now. Recognize not only how good he is, but, but be invited in to the worship of him. So the typical question we should have in our minds as we come into the worship of God is, am I ready to enter into the presence of the Lord? But pause right there, because that question's not exactly right. You notice how, how the question is phrased. It's not quite like that. The question is not merely, am I ready to enter into the presence of God? The question is, who can live there? Who can dwell there? Who has permission to set up camp in the presence of the Lord? How do I, as a human, as a man... As a sinful man, how do I live there in the presence of God? Entering into the presence of God is something the worshipers of Yahweh would do as they come into the temple complex. But living in the presence of Yahweh? Well, that's a whole other question. That's not something that the average worshiper would do. That's something that the king or the priest would be concerned about. How do I live in the presence of, of Yahweh? It seems here that David is asking the question to God about all the rest of the people who shall dwell on your holy hill. God, who do you find worthy enough to dwell on your holy hill? At the same time, this is an invitation. At the same time, David is appealing to God and, and asking him that question. This is also an invitation for you and me, an invitation for contemplation. For all those who would seek to worship God to stop and, and just think. Examine our lives, look at our lives in front of a mirror. David is asking the question generally to you and to me. Are you able to live in the presence of the Lord it's an offer to consider the life that you lead. Understanding your life to be one that is lived in front of an audience of one. You're going to see in the following stanza, as David spells it out, what qualifies one to live in the presence of God. And it's probably going to make you a little bit uncomfortable. It does me. But in reality, the question of holiness is one that we should always be asking ourselves each and every day. Is every aspect of my life being lived as though I am dwelling in the presence of God? There's a pretty common misconception that floats around our churches from time to time. And I'm sure we're all guilty of buying into it. You've certainly heard it misconception is a nice way to put it. Uh, it's really utter rubbish, and it, it's made its way into our theology, and we sometimes are tempted to believe it. And it says this, it says, God can't be in the presence of sin. You've probably heard this from time to time. God can't be in the presence of sin. There's several problems with that. First of all, it makes it look like it's God's problem. That God is somehow deficient in a way. God can't be in the presence of sin. It makes it seem like God and sin are like the wicked witch of the West and water. That just the mere presence of sin and God screams, I'm melting. Sin is, in effect, God's kryptonite. Second, it completely ignores virtually all of Scripture where God is literally in the presence of sinful humanity. The Garden of Eden, Jesus' entire ministry, virtually every page of Scripture before and after that and everywhere in between. And third, it denies the omnipresence of God. What do you mean he can't be in the presence of sin? Is there some place where he's not? 
I guess everywhere I stand, God is not, because He can't be in the presence of sin, right? As if in order for God to not be in the presence of sin, He's got to run somewhere and hide so He doesn't have to be in its presence. Imagine a worm crawling along a sidewalk, and someone is walking along the path, like my son, he, he loves worms, he loves bugs and dirt and little creatures, and he, he loves to protect them, and imagine he's walking along the path, and he sees this worm, and he cautiously steps over it so as not to crush it. Now, imagine the foolishness of the worm if he were to say, that guy's foot can't be in the presence of such a worm as I. It sounds asinine, doesn't it? That a worm would really think that? The issue is not God being in the presence of sin. God has demonstrated throughout human history that He is capable of restraining Himself by staying His hand of justice against sin and being in our presence. In fact, the presence of God in His mercy before Christ came and since Christ came is the only thing that kept mankind from the pit of hell. Even now, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it is strictly God's presence by His mercy that to, uh, to you that you that you that he doesn't just right now judge you, usher you before his own judgment seat right at this very moment. In fact, you're banking on the fact that your heart will continue to beat the very next second. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God," said it this way: "There is nothing." that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. This is the case of everyone out of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone, is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God, there is hell's wide, gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything between you and hell but air. It is the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. The question of whether or not you can dwell in the presence of God is one that you should be considering carefully. It's similar to asking, are you in the family of God? We know that for those in the family of God, there is no fear of hell or fear of the wrath of God. He is a loving Father to us, and He does not send you to help precisely because He took out His wrath toward you on Christ on the cross. So it should cause us to ask ourselves, am I in the family of God? If you're listening to this, you should think about this question very seriously. Are you in the family of God? I know this flies in the face of the culture who says we're all children of God, which is not true. While all are made in His image and all are created by Him, sure, not every person will sit at His table in eternity as His child. In other words, we will not all go to heaven. We will not all enjoy an eternity with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. In which case, we need to look at what constitutes a member of God's family. One who's able to dwell securely with God. One who doesn't just sojourn in the tent, but one who dwells on the holy hill.
Look at what David says in verse 2 through 5. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. I doubt I'm the only one who has read that and is not the least bit encouraged by the list of character traits that David uh, lists there for one dwelling in the presence of God. Nevertheless, it is of utmost importance that we use the Bible as a mirror to give an examination of ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. After all, it is Paul who makes this very clear in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So with that in mind... Let's take a closer look at some of the things that he mentions here. First is the one who has integrity. The one that is in the family of God is one who walks in integrity. What does it mean to be one of integrity? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It's the one whose heart is consistent with his actions. Contrary to popular belief, walking blamelessly here doesn't mean some sort of perfection, flawless perfection, but integrity. Think about Noah and Job and David. They're all listed in one way or another as blameless. Though we know they weren't perfect, literally by any means, they walked with integrity. In other words, their heart, what was deep down in their heart, matched their actions. The, the opposite of a person who walks in integrity would be a hypocrite. One whose heart does not match his actions. He says that he loves the Lord and all of this, but in his heart, that's not really true. Some of this psalm seems to be describing the opposite of Psalm 12, where everyone is described as speaking with what, he, what David says is a double heart. You remember that, that phrase probably from a couple weeks ago. Speaking with a double heart is exactly the opposite of integrity. It's the one whose mouth says one thing and whose heart says another. So here, the emphasis is on the one whose heart and actions magnify the same truth. They testify to the same truth. Their heart has been transformed by the God of the Bible, and their inmost desire is to follow His commandments. Second is the one who bridles his tongue. Specifically, he says he does not slander, he doesn't speak falsely uh, about people to, uh, to other people. In other words, he doesn't tear down or doesn't attribute false motives to the person behind their back. He doesn't do evil to, which is in this context meant to express negative words about his friend or his neighbor. He doesn't talk bad about them at all. This would certainly include gossip. Profanity, coarse, joking, a host of other ways we could potentially use our tongue in demeaning ways. The tongue is one of the most prominent evidences of the inner workings of the heart. One of the foremost fruits of our tree that show us what the root of our tree is really like. Jesus tells the Pharisees, quoting several of the Proverbs, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James, you may recall, has some important things to tell us about the tongue. In James 3, 6-9, he says, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Third, David says, the one who despises what is evil 
and honors what is good. Particularly one that doesn't give honor to those who practice evil and reveres the one who follows the Lord. And I think it's rather easy for us to see ourselves as having, um, maybe having this one in the bag. Uh, well, I've got that one. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't love what is evil. I don't despise those who do good. And, and we potentially don't reckon with our own infatuation with something as simple as celebrity culture. Which is an entire group of people, virtually all of which do what is vile. And we would also have to reckon with our own treatment of those inside the faith. Those with whom you meet on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis during the normal course of events. Before 2020, let's say it that way. The people that you've worshipped with, have you always spoken well of them? Have you always held them in high esteem? Have you maybe torn them down? Is that honoring what is good? Christ purchased them with his blood, and you feel free to tear them down to be ugly to them, to not speak to them maybe, to do a host of other things, is that honoring what is good? Our own brothers and sisters who fear the Lord are often the ones that we tear down and slander. We know them the best. So perhaps we don't get off the hook so easy with that one. Fourth is the one who keeps his word who's true to his word. David says here that he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change, meaning that even when the thing that he promises to do is going to be to his disadvantage, he honors what he has said he was going to do. In spite of the fact that it's difficult sometimes, if you think about something not working to your advantage, how you want to finagle the situation so that you come out on top and yet be false to your word in the process. David says he's true to his word. Fourth is the one, uh, sorry, fifth is the one who, who, who does not have a love for money. David puts this two different ways. First, that when he loans out money, he does so without interest. I think this is speaking to personal interactions, not necessarily business transactions. They're, these are personal qualifications. This is not laying out the biblical practice for all bank, of the whole banking industry right here. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think he's doing that. These are personal qualifications. It, it wasn't uncommon in David's day or even prior to the, pre, the prevalence of banks for money to be loaned out person to person. That's the only way you could get a loan, would be person to person. But a rich person loaning out to a poor person at as much as 50% 50 on the loan. The idea here is that this is an exorbitant practice, and it's taking advantage of the poor, similar to taking a bribe against the innocent. The bribe, again, offered by the one who can afford it, and the innocent being the one who cannot afford to pay the bribe. And so the eye of the judge in that case is on money rather than actual justice. In both cases, the eye is on how can I take advantage of this situation so that financially it can come to my benefit. The foundation of all of it is the love of money. So when a culture loves money, it usually makes the poor suffer. And David is saying, one who does not love money. Looking at these examples that David gives, who are the ones that qualify? Well, the reason that I think this psalm, Psalm 15, fits so neatly together with Psalm 14 is that 14 provides the answer to that question. It preempts Psalm 15 with the answer. In verses 2 to 3 of Psalm 14, he says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man 
to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. So according to Psalm 14, it's not one that qualifies on this basic list. Paul, you'll remember, cites this again in Romans 3, 10 to 12 as an example of the whole human race who stands condemned before God because none fit the qualifications of what is required for dwelling in the presence of God. How's that for good news? Brothers and sisters, this is why the clarification of the gospel and our understanding of it is so vitally important. You will not meet one soul who does not, in one way or another, think that they're a pretty good person. There's a well-known evangelist named Ray Comfort, and you can watch his YouTube videos. He basically walks up to people in a park or public anywhere, with a video camera and a microphone, and he starts asking them questions. And he basically presents the gospel to them through this asking of questions, which is a really great way to do it. But he always gets to essentially a question right toward the very beginning that asks something like, do you think that you're a pretty good person? And nearly 100% of them say yes. And then he puts them through just a question of some basic Ten Commandments, a basic morality test, and all of them utterly fail, as you or I would as well. But the basic starting point is that I'm a very good person. And we think the evil is all over there. The evil is in your heart, not mine. No, no, I'm a good person. And I suppose if we each got to define righteousness on our own, I could craftily draw the line such that it would include me in righteousness and exclude you. But listen, message of the whole Bible is that you cannot provide your own salvation. You are entirely unfit to dwell on God's holy hill entirely. You can't do it. You can't sojourn in his tent without him staying his hand of justice. So how was this going to be accomplished? Because integrity, bridling the tongue, despising what is vile, honoring what is good, not loving money, we're all out. I'm out. The reality of the gospel is that there is only one who had perfect integrity, whose heart truly matched everything that came out of his mouth, and whose heart was truly set on obedience to God completely. There's only one person in the history of humanity who has ever perfectly bridled his tongue without fail. So that even when he was falsely accused, he opened not his mouth. There is only one who despised what is vile and honored what is good perfectly. There is only one who promised to his own hurt and delivered and that was to save his people from their sins. And there's no greater hurt than going to the cross and suffering the wrath of God. There is only one whose justice truly cannot be bribed because he owns it all. There's nothing with which you could bribe him. The only one who fits this description to a T is Jesus. That's the point. Is that we're supposed to get to Psalm 15 and we're supposed to go, Lord, I'm out. 
I don't qualify. I can't dwell on your holy hill. And that's exactly right. Jesus does qualify. The only way I can dwell on the holy hill is if I'm included in Jesus. If I have what he earned. That's the only way. That's it. Otherwise, we're dead and we all deserve the wrath of God. Our temptation, though, at this moment is to check out when it comes to the gospel message because we think to ourselves, I already believe this. I already know this. I'm already included in this. This part of the sermon right here, this is for the unbeliever who doesn't believe. Appeal to them. Let them listen. This is for them. It's not for me, the believer. But this is a serious lapse in judgment on our part. We have to fight to remind ourselves of, the, of this basic gospel truth that I too am dependent every single day on the blood of Christ. It is the basis for my inclusion in the family of God, without which I have no salvation. The truth is that I'm, I must have Christ's earnings transferred to my account. Everything that he earned has to be transferred to me or I'm not getting in. I can't earn that amount of money. We buy my way onto that hill. Christ did. I have to have his transferred into my account. Otherwise, I'm an impoverished sinner in the hands of an angry God. But the miracle of inclusion in the family of God is that not only does he transfer his works, his credit, his bank account to us, but that he actually changes our hearts by his very own spirit. First, his spirit gives to us new birth. To our hearts, his spirit opens up the darkness, peels back the dead man, shines in our heart, and gives to us this epiphany that we must follow Christ in order that I may believe in Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes in and gives to me this kind of new birth. And then afterwards, His Spirit continues to dwell in our hearts to produce in us the kind of fruit that is described in this psalm. Because after all, the Spirit that originally gave to us that birth and now takes up residence in our heart was the same Spirit that empowered Jesus to live it out. Unhindered, mind you, by the carnal flesh. So the Holy Spirit then produces in us, over the course of our lives, integrity. Our hearts grow ever more convinced of the truth of His Word. They grow to love Him more. He matures His people into people who bridle their tongues more and more, who instead of tearing down people, speak well of people. We grow more in having a distaste for unrighteousness and grow ever more in our appetite for righteousness. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've felt this, even probably recently, where you've had a reckoning with sin. And perhaps it came all of a sudden. You feel like you've grown leaps and bounds all of a sudden. That's the Spirit that produces that in you. Sometimes it's all of a sudden. Sometimes it's very, very slowly over the course of many, many, many years. But the point is that it's ever-growing, our appetite for righteousness and our distaste for unrighteousness. We grow in honesty we grow in meaning what we say and saying what we mean. We grow in seeing the illusion of riches and money and what the world has to offer. The Spirit is the one producing that in us. So that means that the root of inclusion 
in the family of God produces the fruit of righteousness in the life of the believer. Think about that for just a minute. The root of inclusion in the family of God produces the fruit of righteousness in the life of the believer. The root of inclusion produces the fruit of righteousness. Folks, the gospel is not beckoning you to enter into the presence of God. The gospel is compelling you to live there. It's 100% of your time. You live in the presence of God. Because that's the irony here. You might have thought to yourself at the beginning of the psalm, wow, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to enter into the presence of God. Newsflash, if you're in the family of God, His presence is in you. You live your life constantly in the presence of God. For those who are disciples of Christ, you have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God. You are living at this moment in the presence of God. And so the question that we as believers must be constantly asking ourselves as we look at this psalm, are these things David lists true of you and becoming truer over time? Are these things true of me? Are they becoming truer over time? I'm going to be honest with you. Not that I haven't been honest with you so far, but I'm going to be even more honest with you right now, I guess. I think the coronavirus is going to fundamentally change at least the American church, maybe the church as a whole, because... I think it's going to expose a lot of people who have been pretending to be a part of the family of God. I think it's going to expose you root and branch. And I think it's going to shock a lot of us. Disappoint a lot of us. Crush a lot of us. Because it exposes many of us. And I think it's going to surprise us. I don't think these people that it exposes are going to be people that just outright denounce Christ altogether. I don't think that at all. I think it already is exposing many of us. But it's not just people that just denounce Christ altogether. I think it's going to start with a rejection of the assembled body of Christ. Things are going to start there. That the people that it begins to expose are going to first go, ah, is it really that important for me to go to church? To actually be there in person? It's going to start there. Churches will find, I think on my side of things, churches will find that the presentation is really easy to offer people online. We can continue to do this. Many churches around the city will continue to do this once they have started it. And people on your side, the pew, will sit at home and will think to themselves that it's easier, it's far easier to attend church online. I mean, let's be honest. It's not as great, but it's far easier to attend church online. And they'll say things like, well, if there isn't a compelling reason for me to come back, then I'll just stay home. Because it's much more convenient for me to stay home. I'm not worried about the kids making too much noise, for instance. They can kind of eat their Cheerios and watch church. I can pause it and go to the restroom if I want to. I can do that. I like the freedom and the flexibility that going to church online gives me whenever and wherever I want to watch it. And there are people that were very involved in their churches, in our church, 
who we had dinners with and fellowships with. And the bark on their tree looked absolutely fine. Great even. We would say, that's a healthy tree. But then the summer heat of the coronavirus came. And the fruit that was beginning to be produced started to look really bad. There's a sharp division in the church that COVID-19 has revealed, not created. It was always there, but it revealed it, or it is revealing it. There are people who have been chomping at the bit to get back together with the church and would just about crawl over hot coals if it meant worshiping together with the church body in person. There are others for whom there are significant health concerns, rightfully so, about COVID-19. And they're staying at home because there's a significant danger that COVID has permeated every aspect of their life. They've sensed the danger and they've stayed in and they order their groceries, they have someone pick them up or they do only what is absolutely fundamentally necessary for them to get out and, and be able to still get food and, and those kinds of things. But it's permeated and really ruined every aspect of their life, and they're totally locked down. They've stayed locked down in their homes as much as they possibly could. However, when you ask them, they'll tell you how much their desire is to be with the gathered body and they'd give just about anything to be there. If it was a healthier body that they have, there isn't anything that they would, wouldn't give to have a healthier body that they might come to church. Or if, if there's any way they could possibly be here, they, they absolutely would. Their desire is to long to be back here with the body. But do you hear the similarities between those two groups? The heart's desire in both of them, as you dig down deep, the heart's desire is to be with the God-sanctioned, Bible-commanded, gathered assembly of Christ's church. That's what's down deep in their heart. The root of their inclusion in the body of Christ is producing the fruit of the desire to worship God together with Christ's body which is what the Spirit does in your heart. When He converts you, He gives you a desire to be with the gathered body. But there's a third group. Personally, I'll tell you, I am really worried about. In the American church, broadly speaking, in our church, Narrowly speaking, I'm incredibly concerned about. For whom this COVID is not really the issue. It's a little bit more of an excuse maybe, if I may be so bold. In fact, your life hasn't really changed that much. In fact, in some cases, it might have gotten a lot better. You're still shopping at the stores. You're still having people over, perhaps at a little bit of a distance, but you're still having them over. You're still going places and doing things, going to some parties and doing things like that, still hugging and still shaking hands and doing all of those kinds of things, fellowshipping with other families who are also cool with it, you know. There are parts of your life where you completely ignore the COVID thing altogether. You visit with people. You don't ask them and interview them about where they've gone and who all they've come in contact with so that you don't get COVID. You haven't done any of that. And you don't ignore, you, you don't you know, treat COVID like it's, like it's a bad thing in any of those instances. But when it comes to church, it's become the excuse 
I might get it there. I'm going to tell you right now, there's not one disease you can catch at church that you can't catch at Target. There's not one. But staying at home has become a little bit more convenient. And you've forgotten that while you do get when you're at church, you also give. You've forgotten that. You've, you think now that church is 100% consumer driven. That it's all about me. That when I go, I get. That's it. That's what it's about, right? I sit in the pew and I get. I learn something. I hear something. I sing something. It's, it's about me. I, I get it all. Well, if that's the case, then I can sit at home and get those same things. And you've forgotten that you actually give when you're here too. That you being in the pew and singing is of aid to the Christian sitting next to you. The Bible actually says that. That we build one another up in the singing. That being together in the same room has a serious spiritual impact on the body of Christ. And you think, you think now it's 100% consumer driven. It's about me. To those of you that are in that position, I want to warn you. That fruit is rotten to the core. It's rotten. And it's not at all biblical. Not in any way is it biblical. And I'm worried about your soul. Seriously, I'm worried about your soul. Not because that misstep of not wanting to come to the gathered assembly is in some way more sinful than any other sin that you could commit. Not, not, that's not true. It's a sin just like any other sin is a sin. Sure. So it's not any more significant of a sin than any other sin. I'm not saying that. But it's like looking at a tree and seeing a rotten fruit and saying, or, or a decaying leaf and saying, it could just be that one fruit. Maybe it is. Maybe this is just an area of your life where you're having a, a little bit of a bout of immaturity and the Lord will work that out of you and you'll confess that and you'll repent of it and you'll change and you'll grow and you'll move past this and 20 years from now, you won't be the same person that you were then and it'll just be that one fruit. We all have those. Every single one of us has those. Currently, right now, we've had them in the past. We will have them in the future. Every one of us has those. So it could just be that one fruit. Or it could be symptomatic of an entire root system that is in complete and utter decay. And that right now, whether you know it or not, you are dangling over the pit of hell, its mouth wide open under you, and the only thing that is holding you up is the hand of God. And God help you if you don't recognize it and you don't repent and change. One day, you'll fall. And there will be no salvation to be had. So I urge you, using this text as a mirror to look at yourself, and analyze your motivation. You don't need to tell me. I don't need one text from anybody. I don't need one email from anybody explaining why you're not here. Right now, we're, no one's here. All of us are at home. I get it. This, these three weeks that we're at home is a good time to just put a pause and a little temperature check. Where's your heart? I don't need to know what's in your heart. That's between you and the Lord. I don't have to know. 
That's a good thing. I believe that I can show up here and I can preach from the Bible, and he does all of that. He does the digging into the heart. He does the exposing. He does all that. I don't have to do that at all. So you don't have to text me. You don't have to email me. But you do need to do a deep dive into your heart. What's your motivation? What is it that keeps you away from the gathered assembly? Convenience? Or really serious issue? What's the heart that's going on? Inclusion of the family in the family of God is not a question of what you've said or what you've done in the past. I invited Jesus into my heart. I got baptized. Here's the day. I can show you when it happened. I got in the water. Inclusion in the family of God is not a matter of what you've said or what you've done in the past. It's a question of fruit. What is being produced in your life? These things are not going to be perfect in you ever until the day when Christ comes back. It's never going to be perfect in you. But they should be true and growing truer over time. So are they? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you in your mercy that everyone listening to this would hear the heart behind what's being said, would see its truth in Scripture. That you would remove all of the filters from our ears, from between our ears and our brain, that say, well, does he know, or does he think about, remove all of those filters from us, and speak truth into the heart of every single person that's listening. Examine my own heart. Show me. I know there are plenty of things, even that I think of right now, that are out of step with what I say I believe. So I pray that you would reveal to each and every one of us those things. I pray for an end to this virus, for sure. But I pray that it would do the work for which you sent it. It would produce in us righteousness. That this trial would produce in us endurance. That this trial would reveal the wicked areas of our heart. And bring us to repentance. Please do that. In our church. For our good. And for your glory. In Jesus name.